everybody is hardwired for justice. I, I, I used to say, you know, when people would be badly treated, when they would be treated unequally, when they were bullied, everyone has that sense. Things have gone wrong. This isn't the way the world should be. This is Culture at a Crossroads with David Mann. We are back to explore the intersection of faith and culture in Canada as we better understand what cultural change means in our country for people of faith. Joining me on this week's show, we have former Chief Justice of the Supreme Court of Canada, Beverly McLaughlin. Thanks for coming on. Thank you. It's lovely to be here. Beverly, you haven't been uh, quiet in your retirement. You've recently been serving as a judge in, in Hong Kong. And from what I've heard, you're, this is something you're a part of because you see this as a, a democratic institution that you can help push forward. Is that what you're continuing to do as you just renewed a, a three-year term, I believe? Yeah, well, basically, yes. Um, when I signed on with the court after I retired, the first Canadian who was ever able to do so, it was in the spirit, uh, which I think lies behind the external appointments, that these judges from outside would be some sort of guarantee that independent justice would be maintained in Hong Kong. And that is why I thought it would be a worthwhile thing to do. As you know, there are a number of judges from England who have done this and some from Australia. But that was why I said, yes, of course, I'd be honored because the Hong Kong court has a long tradition in the British tradition of independent judging which I believe is essential to a democratic society and the rule of law. So it was to contribute to that in some sense. Since that time, we've had the Security Act and other events which show that some of the, the liberal democratic traditions and institutions in Hong Kong are up against very, very tough times. But the court has been left alone. The court is independent, and I'm assured that by the Chief Justice. And there's no effort to interfere with it. So my point is, why would I, uh, some people I know say I should resign, I am not propping up what's happening in Hong Kong. It's this one democratic institution that is continuing to function in a democratic way. And I believe people of Hong Kong need the rule of law and need independent courts at this moment in particular. So this is why I continue to support this venture. Of course, if the court's independence were threatened, I, I couldn't be part of that. But so far, it's fine. You've got to be one of our best Canadian ambassadors in China right now. I don't know. We'll see. I do what I do out of a sense of, I don't want to sound sanctimonious, but I try to think it through and think, what is the best thing to do here? What is the principal thing to do? And that is how I make that decision. Not necessarily what's the most popular. Yeah, let's get into principles a little bit. I did read your memoir a couple of years ago, really enjoyed it, truth be told. And you talk about from a young age growing up in Pinchers Creek, having this innate sense of justice. If you could boil it down, where does that, where does that come from? You know, I think everybody has it, to tell you the truth. Everybody is hardwired for justice. I, I, I used to say, you know, when people would be badly treated, when they would be treated unequally, uh, when they were bullied, Everyone has that sense. Things have gone wrong. This isn't the way the world should be. And I think we see it in our writings, uh, our philosophical traditions going back as far as we have the written word in the human tradition, whether it's the Old Testament, whether it's Islamic tradition or 
some other tradition. They're very, very strong ideas about uh, being treated fairly and about justice uh, that come through in all of human philosophical writing. But I had a, I did more thinking about justice maybe than some people because I, I was brought up in uh, Judeo-Christian tradition and there was a lot about justice in that tradition. And so, yeah, I suppose I, I, I thought about it more than some people. And, and, and also I, I could see injustices around me. I was very fortunate to live in this wonderful country called Canada, but even so it was close to, you know, indigenous, uh, the Pagan, uh, Pecani Reserve, and, and, and there were many uh, people in our society who, who didn't have as much as others, even though, you know, we prided ourselves that everyone, everyone had enough to eat and be clothed. And so the idea of justice really interested me from the time I was quite small. Oh, fascinating. So many formative influences to take you to where you've been in your life. Uh, you did mention uh, that justice was heavily emphasized in your Christian upbringing. Would you say there was a pastor, a church leader, even a character from the Bible that motivated you more down this road? Not a particular one. It was just always around you. Uh, you know, uh, we were uh, encouraged to read the Bible, which was a very good thing for a young person to do. Uh, a lot of long, dry chapters in Exodus, but nevertheless, <laughs> it seeped into my mind, and in particular, the Christian traditions of uh, the new vision that uh, that uh, Christ brought to the Judeo tradition of uh, loving, this idea of love, which is the ultimate consoler, and with it, rejection of class distinction, uh, the parables and Christ's conduct always often had a point of taking the person who was in the gutter, the tax collector, or the woman who had been shunned because she had more than one husband or whatever, and putting them up and saying, this person is as valuable as everybody else. I, I found that that uh, message really, really resonated. And if you think about it, it's a message about equality. It's a message about human dignity, which is, you know, a lot of what we do talk about in our jurisprudence now under the charter um it's it's a message about the worth of every individual and it is essentially a, a conception of justice yeah you mentioned that word dignity and if i were to summarize what i've seen of your uh, career at the supreme court in just one word i would i would use that dignity like the way that you try to see everyone under that light uh, you would again point that back and in, in some way to the to the faith upbringing you had well, yeah, it's there from the time you're, you're very young. But I'm not the only person who has espoused this. It's become quite a central idea under our charter jurisprudence. If we could just go into some of these, these cases that, uh, I mean, there's so many that, that have uh, gone across your, your desk over the years, both in the many courts leading up to uh, the Supreme Court as well. We're talking with the, the faith upbringing connection. So maybe we could uh, jump into uh, 2018 Trinity Western University versus the Law Society of Upper Canada. Uh, this is a, a Christian university, uh, probably the biggest Christian university in Canada. And they, uh, at the time, were looking to put in place a law school that would be accredited. Uh, but given the, uh, the more social conservative values that they you know, championed, the Law Society uh, didn't, it didn't sit well with them that this school should be able to 
put lawyers in place. And eventually the back and forth got up to to you and to the Supreme Court. And uh, could you just like walk me through what that was like? Well, I don't I make a rule of not um, talking about, you know, cases I've heard because it's just a. Uh, it, it's not very helpful. I say what I have to say in my judgment, so you can say it there. But if you read my, you can read it there. If you read the judgment I wrote, I think it's deeply respectful of the right of every person to uh, hold their religious beliefs. And, and I believe that our society and our law has to take that very, very seriously. The conflict comes because some religious beliefs can, in the views of some part of society or perhaps run counter to other values uh, like equality. So this is where the tension comes. But the beauty of the law is that we have a way under the charter of working out these tensions while giving due respect to the religious belief, whatever it may be. So uh, this is uh, the work which, as a judge on the Supreme Court, was my job, and I tried to do it to the best of my ability. Okay, that's fair. So, you don't, yeah, you don't really want to dive into comments? No, of- no, what happens if judges start talking about their decisions is that people then say, oh, well, that's what they really meant. And in fact, as it's a basic jurisprudential tenet that judges speak through their judgments. So I think it's, I've always said, I'm not going to put a gloss on any of that. No, sorry, sorry to disappoint. No, that's okay. Yeah, perhaps uh, another way to ask a question for your comment about maybe the, the, a larger topic that's related to that case might be. Um, so essentially what ended up happening was the school didn't get the green light to practice law. But I, I guess what I would ask is then, do you see a difference uh, in having a, a lawyer graduate from a, a faith-based school that holds to those social conservative principles to a Christian lawyer that goes to a secular school and I mean, they still would have those same biases, wouldn't they? No, well, the, the question is, uh, there, there's no reason, uh, obviously, why one school is not as good as another. The question is whether the graduate can uh, conform to the principles of the law society. And that, that was the issue because of certain beliefs in that case uh, as to um, sexual identity and so on and so forth, because our law societies and our law are deeply committed to equality and to the freedom of people with uh, alternate sexual identities to play a full part in society. I won't say any more about it. That's where that's where it all comes down. The conflict between no reason why Trinity Western or anybody else can't give a terrific law degree. But the conflict comes down when you have to swear that you will uphold the values of the law society after you've graduated. It, as you know, is a very hard fought issue. Oh, yeah. Very hard fought. Different and different rulings at different courts, too. Right. You can yeah. say a lot on both sides of it, but I think perhaps that's as much as I could help you with. That's reasonable. And I mean, I think your upbringing, you have a deep respect for, you know, the dignity that you that transcends you like it comes from this this upbringing. And while this upbringing maybe to the to the world it seems like very binary black and white this is kind of the way that a christian law school might see something but there is that uh, that dignity that they're also trying to uphold of seeing everyone made in the image of god so that hopefully would help people that that have those convictions in other sectors of the world shifting gears to the uh indigenous rights and you touched on uh you had this really unique upbringing in the country in alberta 
you were very close to an indigenous reserve and you had some you had some indigenous people in your class. How did that strike you as a young girl? Well, you know, I just took it for granted. It, it didn't seem like a big deal. And uh, I became good friends with these two people who were the first people to ever be brought to the high school, our little high school, from the Indigenous community. And uh, so they were just just other people to me in the sense, but I admired them very, very much because they were, so, they were such unique and, and, and terrific individuals, quite philosophical. They were good at sports. They, they loved art. And, and, I, and I just, I thought, oh, it's such a, a privilege to just be with these people and see some of their perspectives as to what they see for their people. And so on, those are perspectives that while there was sort of a de facto segregation going on in the education, I never got to see. And so I became, it was a life lesson in how going to school with people from different backgrounds and so on can open up your eyes and enrich you in life. And of course, I've never understood the idea of segregation in education or anything else to tell you the truth because when you mix different backgrounds up you get enriched all the time that's my philosophy oh fascinating you know it's interesting how something like that just sort of grips you and and some of these indigenous people you were in school with they had legal aspirations too didn't they one of the fellows one of the young men who was in our class wanted to become a lawyer but he never did become a lawyer and this is the story i tell in the book uh, because right. he wasn't able to get to uh, university because he couldn't pass. He had good marks but he, in everything except French, but he couldn't pass his departmental French exam. So he actually didn't get to university and never realized his. He told me he was going to become a lawyer, and I think he would have been a great one. So, and so I, I cite that story as it, it illustrates how well-meaning people who are trying to treat people well can end up discriminating and excluding. Would you say that when you were seeing these cases that you would maybe you would see someone like that classmate, some of these uh, people that were on the reserves that you grew up, like they were often on your mind as you were upholding the law in Canada? Yeah, I'm sure. I mean, one doesn't consciously evoke these things, but one of the reasons I think we tend to choose uh, people who've had some experience in life as our judges and so on is that they bring those experiences and diverse experiences to the job. So being a judge, you have to be able to imagine the life of the people whose uh, rights or uh, problems are coming before you. And uh, you have to have this spiritual empathy to some extent to put yourself in their shoes and understand why this is a problem for them. So in uh, approaching those questions, of course, you think back on your own experiences and the judge is enriched by her own experiences, uh, which help her understand that there are a lot of people out there who see the world differently, who don't necessarily uh, have the same perceptions, and it's the judge's job to understand that. So the more diversity in the background of a judge, the more people they meet, the more experiences they have as a woman, you know, certain perspectives on the world, these all contribute, I think, to helping a judge um, do their very best work. Yeah, talk about that for a second. I mean, you were uh, such a trailblazer, the first female Supreme Court of Canada chief justice in our in our history. Would you ever have thought along the way that you that you could have gotten to that role, say back when you were in law school, for instance? 
No, you know, it was a struggle. There were so few women in law, and I just thought, gee, if I can make some sort of a living and survive in this world, that would be great. And so I never had any exalted and uh, ambitions at all. But as it turned out, I was very fortunate and uh, had a fantastic career that involved uh, not only uh, uh, courtroom work, uh, but uh, law teaching and then judging. And I was astonished at the Supreme Court of Canada at the uh, ripe old age of 47. I, 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 no one could have been more astonished than I was. What challenges, Beverly, would you say that you faced as a woman in a, what's seen as a male-dominated profession? Well, the challenges that anyone who's the outsider faces, uh, somebody who's gay, for example, trying to make it in the world but, uh, 20 years ago where such people weren't accepted as having equal opportunity. So you always feel if you're just one of a handful of different people, that people are watching you and that some of them are skeptical about your ability. And it would be taken for granted that, you know, young men could do this, this and that and the other thing. But with a woman, it was never taken for granted. You had to prove yourself. And you knew that there were people who would be skeptical and people who would think you made the wrong choice in life. You should be back doing something else that's more appropriate for a woman. So you always worked under that cloud, under that feeling. And you have to work not to let it get you down. There was a much different age also uh, in terms of uh, what was permissible to be said in terms of, uh, you know, off-color jokes, comments about personal appearance and things like that. Now we've firmly established that women in the workplace have to be free from that kind of what is sometimes said harassment. But in those days, it wasn't as clear. That said, the people I worked with who were just about all men, were basically very, very good people and they were very decent and respectful and I always felt valued. Uh, so this is what it helped and, and, and got me through. Seems like you understood your responsibility uh, so so well. I mean, even years after the fact, you're, you're so careful to talk about cases. Uh, did you ever find it difficult, though, to separate your own beliefs from the responsibilities you had as a judge? No, but it's something a judge has to be aware of. You're put on the bench to apply the law and interpret the law, not to just slot your own belief into a decision. And all judges understand this. They may be from a, a religious tradition where a certain thing uh, would not be theologically acceptable. But as a judge... They have to say, I've got to transcend that. I can't just slot in what the priest or whatever might tell me. I have to apply the law. And so if a judge can't accept that basic responsibility, I don't think they can be a judge. And I come back always to that fundamental value we spoke of, which is the human dignity of every person, which has to be respected in the system. With that, the respect for diversity, the respect for people who have different points of view and lead different kinds of lives because we're all in this society get together and the law provides a structure where we can all thrive together, but we can't thrive if we're tossing each other out and we have to move forward together. So that was always my philosophy. Could you speak a little bit to your philosophy of, of selecting judges? Well, I think that the diversity is important. Canada is a very regional country. 
And we get along in this country as a federation uh, by giving a lot of respect to the different regions. And that should be uh, part of choosing judges too, which it is. Uh, and we have traditions that on the Supreme Court judges come from uh, different judges come from different parts of the country. So I think that reflects the Canadian, the way our, our federation has, has grown and developed. Uh, and it brings, it has the salutary advantage of bringing different viewpoints into the courtroom and into the decision-making process. So all Canadians can feel uh, that, that wherever they come from, they're, they're, there's somebody there who, who has their back, who gets their point at least. Same goes for, for women on the court and minorities on the court. And I hope soon in, uh, uh, Indigenous people on the Supreme Court of Canada. We need this diversity to, to make the court function as well as it can. Beverly, we've touched on your role as a woman, Indigenous rights, dignity of a person. What else would you be most proud from your time with the Supreme Court of Canada? Well, uh, I don't know. It's uh, I tried to do my best on each of the cases, whether it was uh, ultimately uh, the right decision is for other people to say. But uh, I think I'm proud of the fact that every case, small and large, I tried to bring all the resources I had at the time available to deciding it in the right manner. And the notwithstanding clause in relation to COVID, would you make any opinion on that? No, other than to say the notwithstanding clause is part of the compromise whereby we got the Constitution Act and the Canadian Charter, and it's there. It's, as many people have pointed out, something of an incongruity to say, well, we're giving you all these rights, but the, the legislature or the parliament can take them back. But it's something we have to live with. Constitutions are never perfect. And so far, I'm glad that it hasn't been too much used, although some people fear that it's becoming more more acceptable now to use it. So as I approach COVID, I, I approach it with a deep sense of societal obligation, mm. not just to look after myself or pursue my idea, but also to make sure that I'm doing whatever I can to prevent the spread, to make sure our hospitals function well, our schools function well, that so that our society, which is bigger than any of us individually, uh, can continue to be one of the safest and best societies in the world. We need to get that balance between the individual and the collectivity at the forefront. Well, your utilitarian views certainly came out when you were in the Supreme Court, and, and they still do to this day. Beverly McLaughlin, it's been a treat to chat with you this day. Uh, thank you so much for how you're contributing to the greater good in Canada and around the whole world. Thanks so much. It's been a pleasure. So fascinating. Every person is made in the image of God. She accepts that. In fact, it's what has propelled her to see every Canadian with dignity. If we had more time, it would have been interesting to get Beverly's take on why she thinks God would make us in his image in the first place. Perhaps that would have offered more clarity on her give and take with Christianity. Nonetheless, that gives you a glimpse into the compassion and empathy that has flowed down from the Canadian Supreme Court. And if you want to find out anything more about Beverly McLaughlin, I would encourage you to also read her memoir, Truth Be Told. You can check out the show notes at davidmanmedia.com. Next time on Culture at a Crossroads. Over the last several months, we've seen inflation soar in Canada. Supply chain disruption and pent-up demand are a couple of the main factors contributing. McGill University economist Chris Ragan will help unpack this. I think what it really is, it's, it's just showing us um, how integrated 
those supply chains are, whether you're producing cars or whether you're growing fresh produce or whatever it is you're doing. These supply chains, you know, there's not very many products that get produced by themselves, right? Most things have inputs and most things have long chains of inputs and many of those supply chains go across international borders and many international borders. For Culture at a Crossroads, I'm David Mann. Thanks for joining us today and we do invite you back next week as we once again explore the intersection of faith and culture in Canada, helping to better equip you in following Jesus. Jesus.